Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? It is so good to be with you, to be in the house of the Lord, with the people of the Lord, surviving the Thanksgiving that we just experienced. And I uh, hope that you're getting through all of that. Uh, we had a great time at our house. And, you know, really, there's so much to be thankful for, isn't there? I mean, there's so many things that, that can just cloud our minds and push us away from that. But uh, we need to have those times of Thanksgiving. And I've been thankful for this series in the book of John just kind of reboots us, you know, into these timeless truths that John uh, relays uh, to us. I'm excited about the series that's coming up. It's called The Gift I Need. And uh, if you want to get into the spirit of that next series, uh, use your phone, get on that QR code. And uh, on there, there's a place where you can record the worst gift you ever got. And uh, people can share in that, and uh, uh, that can lighten your mood and help you to enjoy this season that's coming up uh, even more. And also on that QR code, are, of all of our locations, are the dates of all of our Christmas Eve services. This is that rare year, happens once every seven years, that uh, Christmas falls on Sunday. So I uh, want you to be taking a look at that, all of our different locations, uh, you can see what we're offering, uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 plus services. So um, I want to welcome all of you that are joining at all of our locations all across this region. If you're inside or online, we're thankful for you as well. And last week, I was talking about what uh, Jesus did to pay for our sins when he died on the cross. And we got to hear that from the only New Testament writer that was himself an eyewitness, John. He was there. You know, I wasn't there. You weren't there, but he was there. And so he's able to share with you what he saw with his own eyes, what he heard with his own ears. And of course, there's a lot of reflection that happens when we think about the cross. But it wasn't just the cross. You know, last week was only half the story. And I'm excited this week to give you the rest of the story that happened after the cross. Because John didn't write what he wrote so that you would understand the death of Jesus. He wrote them so, in his words, that you might believe and then have life in his name. And that comes with an understanding not only of the crucifixion, but also of the resurrection. And I find it really interesting, of all the Gospels, John... He doesn't waste a single sentence on the mechanics of the resurrection. You know, all the rest of them, they talk about exactly what happened in, in the, the garden, you know, the, where the tomb was and, and uh, the stone being rolled away, what happened with the guards and what happened with the angels coming down and all that. John doesn't even talk about that. Instead, he reveals the impact that the, resurre that the resurrection had. And he zeroes in on three individuals. And that's kind of how it is with Jesus, right? He, he's not just about the masses. He's about the individual, just like he's about you. And these three individuals and their stories, the portraits that, that, that John paints of them, I think is just so helpful and so enlightening for us. And I'm going to call them the denier, the disbeliever, and the devotee, Okay. The denier, the disbeliever, and the devotee. And that would be Simon Peter, Thomas, and Mary Magdalene. 
And I want to begin with Mary, the devotee. See, Mary is this picture of utter devotion. And you know, it makes sense to me that she would be as devoted as she was because she had been saved from something unimaginable to us. The Bible says in two different places that she was demon-possessed. And she was not only demon-possessed, she was demon-possessed by seven demons. She was a condo for demons. I can't imagine what that would have made her life like. Now, the number seven in the Bible, numbers have particular meanings in the Bible. And the number seven in the Bible is the number of perfection or completion. And, and so, you know, we can be very literal and say there were seven particular demons. But one thing I pull from that is that she was uh, completely, utterly controlled. Completely under the control of these evil spirits inside of her. And that would have meant that she was completely hopeless. Like her life wasn't hers anymore. There wasn't a decision that she was making anymore. She was under this other control. just horrible, right? And then Jesus steps into her life and exercises those demons out of her. She's in her right mind. What a gift. What an incredible gift to be liberated and experience the freedom that only Jesus could provide. Listen to me. Jesus didn't have to rise from the dead for her to be devoted. Because he had saved her from that. It's incredible. And she was the first one to go to the tomb. When we hear about what happened with Jesus in the resurrection. And we read it in John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, contextualize what you just read with me. Mary comes at night. She comes before the sun rises. And I want you to think about that. I mean, that would be a frightening thing to to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, not really a familiar place to her, and find the cemetery at night to go honor the body of Jesus. So she comes at night, and she has no plan to do what she wants to do. Because it was customary that people would, would honor the, the dead by doing things with their body, like putting spices on their body, by you know anointing them, by ministering to them, because of what nature, when nature would take its course. And so she wanted to serve. She wanted to do this thing. But she had absolutely no plan. She was there when Jesus died on the cross, when he was laid in the tomb. She was an eyewitness. And so she would have known where the tomb was. She would have known that a stone was rolled in front of it. She may or may not have known that there was a Roman detachment of soldiers. She may have not, or may have not have known that there was a seal placed in front of the tomb. I mean, either, either she didn't know that or she didn't think about that because she had no plan. How am I going to 
move a stone away? How am I going to break a seal? How am I going to get around these soldiers to do what I want to do? She had no plan. And actually, I really admire that about her. Because I wouldn't have been that person. I would have been the person who had to have a detailed plan. How many of you would have had to have a detailed plan? I mean, I need to know what to bring and how many people and what time and when do we meet and how do we... Yeah, I would have had to have all that to handle all of the potential pitfalls. Not her. She just went. She just went. And I think it's amazing. Did you read that? That her devotion and her the pain that she's experienced blinds her from realizing that there are two angels sitting in this tomb. I mean, there's two men wearing white going, why are you crying? And it just completely, she is completely lost by it. She doesn't even think about that because of the grief that she's experiencing. And it also tells you this, that she did not have resurrection hopes. She wasn't thinking, well, maybe he rose from the dead. Quite the contrary. Look at 15 and 16. It says this. He asked her, now this is Jesus, and he, she doesn't recognize him. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Like, she was going to be able to get a body and put it back in the tomb. It's amazing. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. How does Jesus meet Mary Magdalene? I think he is savoring the moment. I think he is loving this moment, that he was going to be able to reveal himself to her in this way because of the strength of her faith and her devotion. I think he waited for her in the garden. He could have done a lot of other things, he could have shown himself to a lot of other people, but he chose her, and he chose that moment at daybreak. And he asked her this question. I mean, it's such a silly question. Why are you crying? Well, why would anybody be crying in a cemetery? Why are you crying? But it's a really important question, even though it sounds like a silly one. Because the reality in her mind is she has great reason to be crying. Jesus being there means that everything that every reason she would have to cry has been completely undone. Today, right now, some of you may have great reasons for crying. Maybe there's something going on in your life. Maybe these holidays dredge up memories that are not as great as you'd wish and Maybe you're just trying to get through them rather than enjoying them. Hard to be thankful when this happened or when that's happening right now. Maybe you're crying, but have you thought that maybe you're not realizing what Jesus has already done? Maybe you're a little like her. That you see the finality of certain things, someone who's not at the table this year, or something along those lines, but you don't realize what Jesus has already done for you and everyone else. And in spite of what might be happening in your life right now, in your lower story right now, there is so much to be thankful for because we have Jesus to be thankful for. And then I love the word she uses. 
And I don't think that John put this word in by accident. The word Rabboni. Now, the word Rabboni and the word Rabbi are the same words. And the word Rabbi means teacher. Rabboni is the same word except it's in the formal instead of the familiar. And I think that's important because, you know, there are people that have come up with these narratives that Jesus and Mary had this kind of a thing going on. People have written novels about it. But these words that John records as an eyewitness are proof that that's not true. That she respected him deeply as her teacher and followed him as a mentor, as a guide, and as a teacher. And that's why she used that word. Oh, there's a lot we can learn from this portrait of Mary. But let's just stop with her for a minute and go to the next one. We all remember this portrait because of uh, this man's reputation, and that would be Thomas. And when we talk about Thomas, we use a word with him usually. And what is that word? Yeah, doubting Thomas. And I look at Thomas and I consider him the disbeliever or the realist. Because that's really just a part of who he was. That's how he was wired by God. That he is this realist kind of person. Look at John eleven sixteen. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, this means twin. He was a twin of somebody. I don't know, we don't know who. Said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So Jesus has just told his disciples he's going to Jerusalem. And the disciples know that people are looking for Jesus to kill him. And if they're going to want to kill Jesus, they're going to want to kill his followers too. So, I mean, it's a serious thing for Jesus to go to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, you can look at this a couple of different ways. You can look at Thomas and go, did he say that? Let's just go with him so we can die with him. Did he say that sarcastically? Where he would say, well, then let's go with him so we can die with him. Or do you think that he was looking at it and saying it realistically? Okay, let's go with him so we can die with him. I don't know if it's one or the other. I think it's both of them. Because I think this is kind of how Thomas is wired. A little of both. It plays out later in the upper room. Jesus is giving these incredible words. I mean, incredible, incredible words. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Whether you go, I go, you know, in the way you know. And then, John 14, 5. Thomas said to him, of course it was Thomas, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? You know how Jesus answered that. I am the way. The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Yeah, we may know the answer to that, but I love the way that Thomas just asks this obvious question and he's looking for a concrete answer. Where are you going? I don't know this way you're talking about. He is a realist. And then John 20 24 to 25, when we get on this side of the resurrection. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So Jesus has already appeared to the disciples. But Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, look at these four words. I will not believe. Well, that's pretty strong language. And I think his doubt about the validity of Jesus' resurrection is an honest doubt. However, his empirical thinking, you know, unless I can see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, smell, you know, that kind of thing. I think that somehow shows that there's something darker going on, something even cynical that's going on inside of Thomas. Because he doesn't ask a question, he makes a declarative statement. I will not believe. So I don't think the word doubt is really that good of a description about his attitude. Because it's more of a rejection of the testimony of his fellow apostles than it is a questioning And then what happens? Jesus appears in the room. How does Jesus meet Thomas? We've discussed how he met Mary Magdalene. How does he meet Thomas? John 20, 26 to 29. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Don't you think that Jesus was kind of looking over at Thomas over there in the corner Peace be with you. Because he speaks to him. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hmm. See, I don't think we recognize this, and Thomas certainly didn't, that even when Jesus wasn't appearing in the room, he was in the room. So when Thomas was saying that stuff, Jesus was hearing it because he was repeating it back to him. Right? Uh. Jesus knows Thomas, he understands Thomas, he knows that he's a realist. And he meets him where he is. Even calls him a doubter. Which I think is grace-filled. Because he's more of a denier than a doubter. He's more of a disbeliever than a doubter. And yet Jesus gives him that grace. And do you know why Jesus leans into Thomas? Do you know why he doesn't lean away? It's because he knows his potential. The potential Thomas would have if he was convinced... Now, seeing is not faith, and Jesus makes that clear. It's a lack of faith, but that was what Thomas needed in that moment to unlock his potential. And with that statement, my Lord and my God, the realist Thomas has full confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done, and he never deviates from that. You know, that understanding that happened in that moment between Thomas and Jesus took him further than any other apostle would ever go. You remember Jesus says later on, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure a lot of those apostles would have thought, yeah, you know, eventually it'll get to the ends of the earth. 
Thomas didn't wait for future generations to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. He did that himself. You know how I know that? Because he died in Chennai, India, which is the point as far as you can go. He literally went to the ends of the earth. And he was javelined while being in prayer on his knees. Wow. Learn a lot from Mary Magdalene. You can learn a lot from Thomas on this side of the resurrection. But maybe the most poignant story of all is the one that John saves to last. The denier. Simon Peter. How would you describe Simon, describe Simon Peter? I would use words like enthusiastic, strong-willed, impulsive, brash. He was definitely a natural-born leader, but he definitely has a dark side to his personality. So let's start with that in John 21, 3 and 4. Now, this is a weird place to start. I'm going out to fish. Well, here's what Simon had done. Simon Peter had left Jerusalem, and he'd gone back up to Galilee, not a short journey, about 90 miles by foot, gone back up to Galilee where he was raised, going back to fishing. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you, because he obviously took some of his apostles with him. He is a natural-born leader. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. There could not have been a better scene, a better setup than Jesus creates in this moment. It's awesome because it's exactly the same scene as it was in Luke chapter 5. If you go back to Luke 5, because Jesus is teaching these guys have been fishing all night, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, so Peter's one of them. They're washing their nets because it's been a complete bust, haven't caught anything all night. Jesus gets done, and he says, hey, why don't you throw out your nets for a catch? You know, and Simon Peter says, hey, dude, we've been fishing all night long, we haven't caught anything. You know, stay in your lane, Jesus, we're professional fishermen, you preach, we'll fish, kind of deal. But if you say so. And so they dirty their nets again and they throw them out in the water. And of course the story is every fish in that lake went into that net. till they were break, the nets were breaking and they couldn't haul them in. And in that moment, Jesus was speaking Simon Peter's language. The language of fishing. And Simon Peter realized who was in the boat with him. Not just a teacher. But God. And that's when, G when Peter said, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. You know what he's saying? You're looking into my heart. You know me. And Jesus says, don't worry, Simon. From now on, you're going to be catching people. Beautiful story. And here Jesus weaves the same story again. Just like it was when... Simon Peter was called into ministry with Jesus. He does it again on the same lake, in the same place. And they haven't caught anything all night. And then Simon Peter has this experience. I want you to think about the demons that Simon Peter is fighting. Why is he up there? 
He knows what he's done. He knows when he, you know, you know Simon Peter, this brash guy, pulls a, his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested and he maims one of the servants, right? Cuts an ear off the servant. He's ready to die. He'd already told Jesus, you know, deny you. I would die for you. Jesus has already told him, you know, he's going to deny him three times. And when they arrested Jesus, Peter follows. Doesn't go into the house, but stays out in the courtyard. And while he's out in the courtyard, people start accusing him and pointing their finger at him and saying, aren't you a Galilean? Weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his disciples? And he denies and denies and denies and eventually curses and denies and then went out and wept bitterly. He knows what he's done. What a hypocrite he is. What a poser he is. What a poser he has been. Don't you imagine that there are demons inside of him that he's fighting that are saying those things to him? How fake is your faith really, Simon Peter? And I bet you he kept his shame from everybody else. I don't think he went to the other apostles that he was fishing with and said, hey, guess what I did? Because they weren't around. So the lie continues inside of him. And so he goes to Galilee. Why? Because he's wanting to escape those feelings. He wants to go back to an abandoned life. Because that's what he deserves. Until Jesus steps into the picture. Just like he did with Mary. Just like he did with Thomas. He steps into the picture with Simon Peter. You know what? It's time to face the music. John 21 verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. He makes his way to shore because he is going to face the music. You know what it's time for? It's time to have a little walk with Jesus. Some of you right now, today, this moment, it's time to have a little walk with Jesus and have a talk with Him. It's time to confront those demons. But if you're taking a walk with Jesus, you don't have to confront those demons alone. He'll be right there with you. John records those next moments and as painful as those next moments were for Simon Peter, in that confrontation, in that conversation, the result of it was better than the removal of those regrets and demons inside of him. It was reconciliation. The same words that John records Jesus crying out from the cross, even though Simon Peter wasn't there to hear it, it is finished, now applies to Simon Peter. Because what he did in denying him has been overcome by the grace of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These people in their stories are so completely different. And yet Jesus meets them right where they are and ministers to them. If he can do that with them, can he do that with you? Is he available to do that right now? Does he desire to do that right now? I love the fact that Jesus didn't assemble people who were just like him. He put people together 
that were so completely different because he's the greatest of leaders. And Jesus has this ability to meet you right where you are and then lead you to the place that he intended for you, if you'll just follow him. So now the question gets personal. Which one are you? Are you the devotee? Are you the disbeliever? Are you the denier? Or are you something different than all of those? Maybe you're facing something right now. Maybe you're connecting with the feelings of these three that John shares with you. And maybe you're feeling and experiencing something completely different. God knows I don't. Maybe you're looking for a different outcome than the one you have right now. Maybe you're looking for the release of a circumstance. Maybe you're looking for forgiveness from what you cannot take back. Maybe you're saying to God in your silence as you sit there, why are you letting this happen to me? I got a call a few weeks ago from my oldest sister, Carolyn, telling me that my second oldest sister, Arlene, was in the hospital and she wasn't doing well. Arlene's 17 years older than me. Carolyn's 19 years older than me. I'm the baby of the family. They wanted me to pray. I ended up driving down there and spending some time with her. I mean, she's the most, one of the most, if not the most intelligent person in our family. Incredible follower of Jesus Christ. Knows the scriptures like you would not believe. And yet, she was struggling. And she's had a rough few weeks. She's in the hospital. They tried to get things under control. Did a number of procedures that made her a lot weaker. And she went to rehab. She did a week in rehab. Got her a little bit stronger. Went back home. Wasn't there 24 hours before more issues. Back to the hospital there. Going undergoing a bunch more tests and and difficult procedures making her even weaker, and now she's in skilled care. And I don't care how strong you are in the Lord or in His Word, those things can be really daunting. And for her, she was struggling with discouragement. And my next oldest living sister, my sister Kathy's closest to me, also been in the conversation via text and whatever, she sent Arlene a message that she had seen and read and thought it would give her some encouragement. And Arlene responded how just encouraging it really was. Because what Kathy gave her and what she shared was a whole new point of view. And I would like what we have been experiencing as a family and that encouragement to flow over you today. So I'm going to share that with you. The first reference in it is a reference to Joseph in the Old Testament. The one with the, many, the coat of many colors. And this is what Kathy sent to Arlene. I would have pulled Joseph out. Out of that prison. Out of that pain. And I would have cheated nations out of the one God would use to deliver them from famine. I would have pulled David out out of Saul's spear-throwing presence, out of the caves he hid away in, out of the pain of rejection. And I would have cheated Israel out of a God-hearted king. I would have pulled Esther out, out of being snatched from her only family, 
out of being placed in a position she never asked for, out of the path of a vicious, power-hungry foe. And I would have cheated a people out of a woman God would use to save their very lives. And I would have pulled Jesus off, off of that cross, off of the road that led to suffering and pain, off of the path that would mean nakedness and beatings, nails and thorns. And I would have cheated the entire world out of a Savior, out of salvation, out of an eternity filled with no more suffering and no more pain. And oh, I want to pull you out. I want to change your path. I want to stop your pain. But right now I know I would be wrong. I would be out of line. I would be cheating you and cheating the world out of so much good because God knows. He knows the good this pain will produce. He knows the beauty this hardship will grow. He's watching over you and keeping you even in the midst of this. And He's promising you that you can trust Him. Even when it all feels like more than you can bear. So instead of pulling you out, I'm lifting you up. I'm kneeling before the Father and I'm asking Him to give you strength. To give you hope. I'm asking Him to protect you and to move you when the time is right. I'm asking Him to help you stay prayerful and discerning. I'm asking Him how I can best love you and be a help to you. And I'm believing He's going to use your life in powerful and in beautiful ways. Ways that leave your heart grateful and humbly thankful for this road you've been on. Let me tell you, it's, it's good to have a family like that. Where we can rest in the grace and the goodness and the love of God. Even when we can't see it, we can't feel it, and it doesn't make sense to us. And I know that at times like this in the year, some of us, we let the lower story take over. But it's time to raise our eyes, to lift up our eyes, and realize that the upper story is there as well. And that God loves you. That He has a plan for your life. That Jesus died for you. And He's coming back for you someday. Would you reflect on that as we move to a time of decision? So, what's getting in the way in your life right now? What's keeping you from being able to focus on the goodness of God and being thankful? And these other things that are coming into your heart and uh, into your mind. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, a lot of you, I'm sharing that story about my family, and you connect with that. You're connecting with it right now. Different names, different circumstances, but a lot of the same emotion. Right? And I think this is a place where we understand each other. But if we could just not think so much about the things that are happening on the earth. 
so much about, you know, I can be thankful because of all of the things I've received from a human, earthly perspective. But instead, to see something greater of what I have received that I could never earn and I could never deserve. There's some of you here today that have never stepped into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And He has come all this way. And like I said to you, He was in the room when Thomas was saying what He was saying. Thomas couldn't see Him, but He was there. And He's in this room right now. And He knows the argument you're having in your own head right now. He knows all the stuff that you're thinking right now. But He's still here right now. And He's here for you right now. And he sees your potential. He knows what, he, what you're capable of because he made you that way. And he's looking for your heart to say yes to him. And if you have never said yes to an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can do that right now. There's going to be somebody standing over there by that baptistry that would love nothing more than to talk to you, to pray with you, And to help you on a journey that somebody helped them find. All the way to the gates of heaven. And Jesus saying, welcome home. Well done. This is what I prepared for you. Many of you are here today and you made a decision for Christ. You're walking in that relationship, and that's great. But you know that stuff gets in the way. And sometimes this world and the cares and the burdens and the challenges, the circumstances that you face, they can become overwhelming and overpowering. And that's why we need time. And that's why these steps are up here in front of you, because to take some time before the Lord, Because he changes everything. For Mary, it was Ravona. It was, I don't have a reason to cry anymore. For Thomas, it was, I've stopped doubting. And now I'm believing. And I'm going to act on that. I'm putting my skepticism away. And for Peter... I can look you in the eyes again. I can face you because you've taken away my shame. For you, God knows. Jesus knows. And maybe today, you can admit that to Him and feel His strong hands holding you and lifting you back up to face a world, but never alone. Would you stand with me? And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you because we have the name of Jesus to speak. And because of him, we have confidence to approach your throne. And we ask you, Father, that today, we're not asking you to move. We need to move closer to you. Whatever form that takes today, I pray 
that we would listen to your spirit at work in our hearts and move in your direction. In Jesus' name, amen.